As we come to the word this morning, uh, I just want to start again with a, a word of prayer. We, I was talking with some other leaders um, earlier this week, and one of the best compliments we've ever received as a church is someone came up to us after a Sunday morning and said, you guys pray a lot. And we said, yeah, thank you. I don't know if they meant it as a compliment, but that's how we took it. And so uh, would you join me just one more time in praying? Lord Jesus, we invite you now. We have been inviting you all morning, and I just want to stop and make sure we don't miss it again. Would you come and have your way? God, if this is just my words or my thoughts, it's useless, and we should go home. But Lord, if you are going to show up and speak to your people, then we will be transformed in your presence, and God, that is worth it. So would you do that for us this morning? Would you make yourself known? Lord, may people come away going, man, I heard the Lord say this morning, we will give you praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are nearing the end of the book of Mark. No more. We've been in Mark for a long time. Next week will actually be the end of the book of Mark. We will never read from it again. It cannot be mentioned from this point forward. There will be three Gospels in this church. We're done with it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it has been such, a, for me at least, such a good journey to slow down and to walk through uh, the life of Jesus uh, in this way. And so uh, as we, we come now, we find ourselves on Jesus' final day leading to the cross. This is the hour, uh, as he would say. This is why he has come. Last week, we were looking at uh, his trial uh, before Pilate and just everything that took place there. Uh, and we find ourselves now after Pilate, the gavel comes down, Pilate says guilty and condemns him to be crucified. He has been scourged, flogged, whipped within an inch of his life. And then we find in verse 16, then the soldiers led him away into the courtyard, that is the headquarters, and they called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to, the, to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him, getting down on their knees. They were paying him homage. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe. They put his clothes back on him and they led him out to crucify him. Listen to the cruelty to the indignity of which not only the Son of God, but any man was subjected to. Not only beat within an inch of your life, but then mocked, continually struck, spit on. Jesus was handed over to these men by a crowd that was once astonished with him, but now was screaming, crucify. He was handed over to them by Pilate, who just 10 verses earlier was amazed by Jesus and now has condemned him to death. We talked last week, being a fan of Jesus, respecting him, thinking what he says is true is not enough. The crowd did the same thing. Pilate at one point did the same thing. And now those same people have turned him over to the cruelty of the Roman guard. Continuing on, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Jesus has suffered so much at this point. This has been going on for somewhere in the ballpark of 12 hours. He has been mocked. He has been beaten. He has been questioned and tortured for about half of a day. It's only nine in the morning And he's already been going through this for about 12 hours straight, just handed from one to the other to be mistreated again and again to the point where he can't even carry the crossbeam of what will be the implement of his death. It was common that they would make everyone who was going to be crucified carry the part of their cross through the city all the way out to this place called Golgotha. Jesus couldn't even begin that journey. He was already so weak. We're going to read later on that when Jesus dies after six hours on the cross, that actually Pilate is is surprised and amazed that he died so quickly. He, He was so beaten, so battered, so weak from everything that had happened to him over the last 12 or so hours He couldn't even begin the journey. And so can you imagine if you're Simon, maybe you've come into the city to go to the temple to worship that day. Maybe you've come in to go to the market just to get some bread and you're getting back home. And you get roped in by these guards. Anytime the guards call your name, you're already terrified. And they go, you, help us kill this man. Carry his cross for him so that we can nail him to it. Can you imagine just being inscripted like this? And you can't say no, or else you might be beside him on the cross. And so this man, Simon, carries his cross through Jerusalem. It's almost this this gross parade that they would have to the place called Golgotha. And then, again, they did this with flogged or scourged. Then they crucified him. That's all it says. And they move on. But these are some of like the, 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 the deepest words that we have. And what they're portraying is some of the, the, the grossest means of death ever created. To have your arms stretched out, a nail piercing each hand, to have your feet placed one over top of the other, one nail driven through both, and then put up so that you are suspended by your arms. This was a horrible means of death. Typically, it took days to die. Again, Pilate was going, only six hours? Are you kidding me? I can't even imagine. But it would take days. It was actually a death of suffocation. You would become so weak from from hanging here, the nails piercing your feet, stopping you from being able to stand. All the muscles that help you in breathing just start to, to weaken and tire And your breaths become shorter and shorter and shorter until for most people after days, they die. But Peter, in Peter's way, they crucified him. The end, we don't need to describe it. And sometimes we read it that way. Yeah, 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 the cross, we get it. This was a terrible means of death. They lead him there, Simon carrying his cross, 
They crucify him. And listen to what little care they have for him. They divided his clothes and casting lots to decide who would get what. As he's right there above them, nails in his hands, laboring to breathe, bleeding all over, they're like, ooh, a robe, I needed a robe, awesome. They care nothing for him. And in verse 26, it says, the inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. This was Pilate's dig at the Pharisees. He knew, it says earlier, that he knew exactly why they had brought Jesus to him. They were jealous of him. And so he puts an inscription up that is actually their own words, knowing just how much it'll rile him up. In one of the other gospels, there's an account of them going to Pilate and complaining, you can't put that up there. You can't call him the king of the Jews. It looks like you're crucifying our king. Little did they know how true it was. But I said last week, when your goal is to just be right in an argument, you will always say things now that you regret later. The Pharisees were regretting ever telling Pilate, this guy's calling himself the king of the Jews. Now it's coming back on their own heads and they're like, oh, we've, we're putting on display Rome overcoming Israel again. And like, so they're furious about it. And I have to imagine Pilate just had a little smirk on his face. A last little, who's in charge now? They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, and he was counted among the outlaws. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him to one another, saying he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. A few verses later, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Listen to the cruelty can you imagine seeing a man slowly dying in front of you, his life literally draining away, and to just mock him openly? It's cruelty that it's hard to even put your heads around. And we touched on this a couple weeks ago. They start saying things like, save yourself, come down from the cross. He saved others, can't he save himself? Let me ask you this question. Could he have come down from the cross? Anytime he wanted to. I think of just the, the faith and the integrity of Jesus. If I had the power to go, okay, we're done. I would have done it long before nails pierced flesh. Don't get me wrong. But once they started mocking, oh, you want to see power. Oh, they, they even say, why doesn't he come down, this king of Israel from the cross, so that we may see and believe. Oh, you want to see something special? My pride would have flared up and I would have ruined the whole thing. But Jesus knows why he's there, and he endures the mockery. He endures the shame that's being heaped on him all the while, having the power to stop it anytime he wanted to. But he knew that that would be against the Father's plan. But let me ask you this question. Think about what happened with the Roman guard. Think about this scene now, Jesus on the cross, the Israelites mocking, throwing insults. Can you spot any difference between how the Romans treated Jesus and how the chosen people of God treated Jesus? 
Can you spot any difference? Which one of them hit him in the head with a stick? Both. Which one of them spit on him? Both. Which one of them kept punching him? Both. Which one of them mocked him and kept saying, oh, you're the king, oh, you're a prophet? Both. Which one of them insult after insult in his moment of greatest need? Both. Let me ask you this. How often does our justice look like the world's justice? We are, as a church, the people of God. How often does our response look exactly like the world's response? How often does our disagreement look just like the world's disagreement? Snide comments, underhanded jabs, typically cloaked in religious language. If we start looking at Facebook pages, if we start, how much of a difference are we going to see? Because this people of God acted exactly like the world. Like, like the thing that they would have said, that's the worst the world has to offer. They would have looked at the Roman guards and been like, that's as bad as it gets. And yet when their hearts are revealed, it's exactly the same. The people of God look exactly like the worst the world has to offer. How often is that true of us? I'll leave that with you. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me ask you this question. Was Jesus really asking God? Did, did he really not understand what was happening to him? No. At this moment, Jesus was experiencing what those without Christ live with every single day. He was experiencing it for the first time. Separation from the Father. He, he was experiencing what it was to live at a distance with his creator. And the only response he had is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I knew that this was the plan, but I had no idea it would be like this. It's unbearable to Jesus. He doesn't say it when the nails go in. He doesn't say it when the insults come. He doesn't say it when the whips are cracking. But something happens at this moment where Jesus experiences this separation from the Father and he can't live in that state. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks of this exact moment, and it said, he made, he being the Father, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. At that moment, Jesus on the cross was doing the real work of the cross. All of the sin of everyone who would call on his name for all of history was poured out on him at that moment. He actually, the, the scripture says it's like he became sin. He took on so much sin that the father for the first time ever had to turn his face away, had to hold him at a distance. Their relationship was broken for the first and praise God only time in all of recorded history because he took on our sin. Because he took our place. All of a sudden, he was living the life that all of us, when separated from God, live. 
I, I read this story and I see Jesus' response and I start to think, this is the soul cry of every man and woman that doesn't know Christ. They walk around all day, whether they would be able to put these words to it or not, why has he forsaken me? I was created for something more, but I can't get there. There is this hole inside of them, yet we too often as the people of God go, why do they act like that? Why do they do that? Why would they say that? Why would they think like that? Because everything in them is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And too often we as Christians stand in judgment of them. You shouldn't do that. Well, you shouldn't say that. Their hearts have been ripped out of their chest by their sin. It happened when they were so young, they don't even remember. It's now normal to them. But their heart's cry is, I want more. I was created for more. I know it, and nothing else works. Nothing else fills it. And too often the church stands back and go, how dare you do that? How dare you say that? How dare you think that? They need to see more. They need to know that there's more. Their lives are crying out. Why have you forsaken me, God? And he sent us to tell them. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. It's almost like at that moment on the cross, Jesus became a magnet for sin. And it sucked sin away from me, the sins that I have committed, the punishment that I deserve, put on him. I mean, again, to the extent that it says he became sin. And every righteous act he ever did, every righteous thought he ever had, every righteous motive that ever drove him, all of the sudden is put on me to the extent that it says, I have become the righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange. We look at the world around us who is walking around in the state of disrepair, their hearts ripped from their chest. And sometimes we just give them behavior management. Stop doing this, start doing that. And what we need to do is speak to what's really going on. You have been created for more than this, and he has created a path for you. Through the death of his son, there is more. All of your regret, all of your guilt, all of the forsakenness that you walk around with every day can be removed. You, you're being offered the righteousness of God, restored relationship with him. But far too often, this is not our message as the church. But Jesus let out a loud cry and he breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was the son of God. That, that little scene right there has always made me scratch my head. What was it about the way that Jesus breathed his last, about the way that he died, that caused this Roman centurion, he, he was a pagan man who believed that there was hundreds of gods out there, yet something about Jesus' final moments caused this man to go, surely he was the son of God. Maybe it was Jesus' silence while he was being mocked and insulted, that this man saw something in him that he's never seen in any other man before. He has seen groveling. He has seen blaming. He has seen uh, bartering. Trying, Look, I will pay you. Get me down from here. I'll give you whatever you want. 
And yet he sees Jesus just taking it all silently. Maybe it was Jesus' interaction with the thieves that were being crucified with him. We, we have in Luke's account. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? Since you're undergoing the same punishment, we're punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, this man had heard a lot of things from people being crucified. He never heard them blessing people being crucified with them. Not only are you not alone now, but you will be with me in paradise. There's something about the way that Jesus handled himself on the cross that this centurion went, what is happening? Maybe it was the faith of Jesus literally as he breathed his last in, in Luke 23. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. The centurion had probably never seen anything like this before. As he's being crucified as a criminal, beaten and bloodied, his last words are words of faith, that he trusts his heavenly father. What? Who does that? I've never seen anything like this before. Maybe it was the way creation responded to Jesus' death. Over in the book of Matthew 27, Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Okay, haven't seen that one before either. At the moment of his death, massive rock-splitting earthquake, tombs are opened and people start walking out. Maybe this man, not even maybe, he says, surely this man was the son of God. Something in the way that, that Jesus breathed his last, the way that he endured the cross, caused even this pagan participator in his execution caused him to say, surely this man is who he says he was, is the son of God. Back to Mark 15, there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they would follow him and help him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went into Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he brought some fine linen, he took him down and he wrapped him in the linen. Then he placed him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where they had placed him. As the stone settles into place, it looks like evil has won. To everyone watching, to Jesus' disciples, to the women who were watching, to the Roman guards, to Joseph who boldly goes and asks for Jesus' body, 
And it says that his corpse was handed over to him. As that stone rolls into place, it looks as though evil has won. We've run out of time. It says there that this happened on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. This was a Friday. At 6 o'clock Friday night, the Sabbath began. And like Joseph, when Jesus died at 3, he goes, I have three hours to deal with this because come 6 o'clock, if, I have, if I'm still working with this, I'm unclean for the Sabbath. I, I can't celebrate the Passover. I can't. And so as soon as Jesus dies, the crowd disperses. Because they've got things to get ready. They've got better places to be. Whether they were mocking him or not, this crowd disperses because I guess it's over now. Some were probably rejoicing. We beat him. Those that had been watching Jesus, either from afar or up close, were probably head and hands going, it's over. I can't believe it's over. We find that the disciples later locked themselves in an upper room because they didn't know if somebody was coming for them and they just sat there all weekend. What do we do now? He's dead. It's over. This was the darkest day in human history. Did you catch it in verse 33? It says, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Even the sun stopped shining. This was the literal and metaphorical darkest day in human history. God in human flesh crucified and died. Yet we call it Good Friday. We call it Good Friday because we know what happened on Sunday. We know that there's a chapter 16 to Mark. And we know what it talks about in chapter 16. But even in this story, even on this darkest day, even before you get to what happens on Sunday, there are signs of hope riddled throughout this story. All throughout what we've read today are signs of hope that if the people were looking, they would have seen. Let's talk for a little bit. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Let's learn from each other. What were some of the signs of hope that we've seen in the story today? Were you able to catch them out? What did you catch? Go ahead. Okay. Even in the way that he was being tortured and executed, it was still fulfilling scripture. To anyone who knew the Old Testament, they would have known, wait, the Messiah, it says that he would be counted among the thieves and he's crucified among thieves. Like even in that, there's this, wait, is it true? It's fulfilling scripture, even though it looks so dark and how can this be happening? But we were also told that this would happen. And there would be some hope there. What else? What signs of hope do we see? Joe? The veil in the temple was torn in two. We're going to talk about that here in a minute and the importance of that. But that would have been an incredible sign for any that were paying attention. Yeah. Again, we're going to talk about it more here in a minute, but what happened between Jesus and the other thief is miraculous, is incredible that this would happen on the darkest day, yet Jesus offers this man hope. Maverick? Yeah. 
We know, again, that there's hope in this because of what happened on Sunday. But what about just in this story? What else? Joe? Mm-hmm. I'm going to, um, I almost put that in here, but I didn't, and I'll tell you why. We're going to talk next week. We've talked a little bit in the book of Mark about when you read the, uh, in your Bible, there's certain things that are in brackets that they're kind of going, hey, some manuscripts have this and some don't. That's from the book of Luke, and some manuscripts have it and some don't. And I kind of want to, only wanted to stick on things that like, I know for a fact were there. But I, I immediately thought of that too, even while Jesus is on the cross. In a lot of manuscripts it has in the book of Luke that he, he said, Lord, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. As being crucified was still pouring out forgiveness. Let me show you a couple signs of hope that I found in the story. One I've already talked about, so we're just going to touch on it quickly, the centurion. Even at his death, people were starting to follow him. I don't know where it led with this centurion, if he gave his life to Christ one after Sunday. and he, I, We don't know. But it's a good starting place to go, surely he was the son of God. Even at his death, people were going, there's something to this guy and what he said. There's something to this guy and how he lived. The veil being torn. This is so incredibly impactful when you begin to understand what the veil represented. It says that as Jesus died, we read about it in two different gospel accounts, the veil in the temple was torn in two. So we, if you remember a couple weeks back, we looked at the whole temple complex. You could fit about 50 football fields inside this temple complex, and the crown jewel was the temple itself. And what's the crown jewel of a crown jewel? What's the thing that tops a crown jewel? I don't know. The best part of it was this thing in the very center called the Holy of Holies. This was the part of the temple where the presence of God was supposed to reside. In the Old Testament, that's where the Ark of the Covenant, and there was, there was some very holy relics that were in there, and that was God's throne room. His presence would fill the Holy of Holies in smoke and fire. It was so holy that only one person, the chief priest, could go in there one day, once a year, to offer sacrifices literally in the presence of God. And even that was, was such shaky ground because we're sinful humans that if he did anything wrong, he was struck dead on the spot. They would send him in. He had bells around the tassels of his robes and a rope tied around his ankle because it was not uncommon for them to do some minor infraction, but in the presence of God that cost them their lives. And when they heard the bells stop ringing, they would have to pull the body out. This was an incredibly holy place. So when Jesus dies and the veil is ripped, it, says, it even says from top to bottom. This thing, if I remember correctly, it was about 30 feet tall. It's not like somebody just got in and started gnawing at it. And like from the top to the bottom, this was a, an impossible way for it to rip. As it rips in two and exposes the holy of holies, what was inside? Nothing. The holy of holies had been empty for hundreds of years. This temple had been being built for about 80 years at this point, and everybody knew it's empty. The object of their worship wasn't home, didn't live there. The, the whole Jewish faith was based on something that didn't exist anymore. They, they were offering these sacrifices to God, and they were playing the games because they knew this is God's house, but God hasn't been home for hundreds of years. 
We're not actually able to even do the Jewish religion like we've been called, but everyone's playing pretend. And when the veil tore, it was exposed. The emptiness of their religion, of the law. It's inability to do anything, to have any kind of effect on the follower's life because the Holy of Holies was empty. God wasn't home. You were coming to his summer house in the winter and oh, sorry, you missed him. Leave a sacrifice, maybe he'll care later. It was empty. But what it also represented was the place where God dwelled, was supposed to have dwelled in the Old Testament, is now ripped open because God was going, I no longer have an address. You can no longer find me at one temple drive, Jerusalem. I'm on the move. From this point forward, every barrier that had been in place to keep men away from me has been ripped apart. I'm now coming to you. We're told all through the New Testament that we have become the temple of God. Those that follow him, you are now the holiest place on earth. Wherever your foot treads is the temple of God. We talk sometimes, it actually bothers me. I'm not going to slap anyone's hand if you say it to me, but when people call the church the house of God, no, it isn't. Guess what? When we leave here, I'm always the last one to leave. I leave around one o'clock on Sunday. Guess what this place is? Empty. Because God's on the move at that point. He went with you. He's at lunch with you. He's at your family's house. The barrier between God and man represented in the veil is ripped apart because God now lives in mankind. Everywhere we go is the holiest place on earth. The interaction with the thief. Again, think about it if you're watching it. If one man who's being crucified says to another man who's being crucified, hey, can I follow you? When your kingdom comes, can I be a part of that? And the other man who's moments away from death says, don't worry, I got you. Today, you're going to go where I go. No one's looking at that and going, that makes sense. Jesus, like this, this is so profound that Jesus looks at him. First of all, that the man sees Jesus, understands who he is and says, even though you're moments away from death, I want to follow you. I want what you have coming because I see your faith. Maybe Jesus had come to this man's village and he had seen Jesus do miracles. Maybe he came to a synagogue and he had heard him teach and something clicked where he went, look, I know this is the end for me and I want to be with him. Even though he's in far worse shape than me, they're still mocking him. I want to be with him. And for Jesus to look at him and says, today, this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. Because of your faith, you can follow me where I'm going. This was an incredibly profound moment that, again, if you put yourself in the story, we're so familiar with it, we've heard it a thousand times, but these are two crucified men talking to one another. The crowd would have been going, what? what? You don't say that to somebody else. You don't want to be where he is. But what the thief saw and how Jesus responded gives us incredible hope. What did the thief do to earn it? His last act was stealing something. He was caught, sentenced, crucified. And yet Jesus goes, you're in. 
That is a hopeful thing. It was nothing about what the thief did to earn it. He put his faith in Christ. I want to be with you. And Jesus said, that's all it takes. You're in. Even this very day, you'll be with me in paradise. The last sign of hope. You have to connect some dots on this one. But when I, when I first saw this, something in me just jumped for joy. I don't know why it was. Simon the Cyrenian. In verse 21, it says, They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why do they mention his kids? Just saying Simon from Cyrene would have been enough to identify him, just like it was Jesus of Nazareth. That was kind of how you identified somebody. Why mention his kids? Because the church knew them. When they said Rufus and Alexander, that was a bit of a name drop. Peter was like, Simon, you know Rufus and Alexander's dads, your friends, those guys who are actually a part of the church now, it was their dad who carried the cross of Jesus. Something about this, again, a horrible act. I can't imagine being Simon and being conscripted in. But even in this horrible thing he was forced to be a part of, something changed the direction of his family for generations to come. To the point where his sons are actually followers of Jesus. In Romans chapter 16, verse 13, Paul is greeting people at the end of his letter. And he says, and greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. His mother is like a mother to me. Rufus is like a brother to me. He has helped me on the mission Christ has given me. Where did Rufus get his start? His dad, Simon, probably came home from Jerusalem with a really weird story that changed the family's trajectory for generations to come. Simon the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You guys know Alexander and Rufus. It was his dad. That horrible day changed everything in their family in the greatest of ways. God was moving in powerful, generational changing ways even in the darkest day in human history. Today, there is darkness all around us. It can appear today, if you watch enough news, that evil has won. It's certainly winning. And it can start to feel hopeless. It can start to feel like, why are we even bothering? They're already winning. They're going to keep doing that no matter what. Are we even making a difference? Have conversations with other brothers and sisters, and you will begin to hear just how dark it is today. The church has been declared dead a number of times. We've certainly lost our primary place in culture. The church is declining in almost every single category. Our country, in fact, our world feel like they're, they're more divided than ever before. Neighbor against neighbor, family member against family member, whether it's politics, views on the pandemic, vaccines, masks, justice issues, social media, it's easy to look around and go, I think darkness is winning. What are we even doing? Does the church even stand a chance? Or, you know, some have said, and it's been repeated a bunch of times, the church has about 20 years until it becomes extinct. I'll talk to you in 20 years. But that's what it looks like. Even the world is looking in and going, they're breathing their last breath. We're winning. They're losing. Yet even today, 
For those who have eyes to see, there are signs of hope everywhere. Where do we see signs of hope today? In each other. In each other? What do you mean by that? Yeah, we receive hope from spending time together, from, from seeing even the little victories in other people's lives. And there's something transferable. We know if God could do that in their life, he can do it in mine. If God could do that in that nation, he could do it in mine. If God could do that in that time, he can do it in mine. And so there's something about when we are together, the encouragement, the hope that we're able to give to one another, even in a dark time. What else? In God? Yeah. How, what do you mean by that? Can you tell me anything about that? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to read a couple passages of scripture here in a minute where God continually references hope, how he is working hope, the point of hope, all of these things. God is continually saying, don't give up hope. Do we have eyes to see? Where else? Where do we see signs of hope? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hope very much is a lens that we view life through. It's not an emotion. It's not like, oh, just a happy feeling. Hope, hope is a choice that we make. Hope is faith going, what he said is true, even if the world looks real dark. He is more powerful, even if I just keep finding out how twisted those in power are in this, heaven, or in this earthly realm, excuse me. I choose to live life viewing it through the lens of hope that says he is greater. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Where else do we see signs of hope today? Yeah. Yeah. And here's the, again, the part that turns things on their heads. When you go to some of the countries like Shirley was sharing about, whether that's Iraq, uh, a couple months ago she shared Voice of the Martyrs of things that are going on in China and in some of these other places, the church is exploding in places where it's illegal to be a Christian, in places where it will cost you your family, your job, potentially your life to follow Jesus, the church is exploding like we've never seen it before. Here where it's comfortable, where there's no persecution, where you could come or you could not, no one cares, it doesn't matter, the church feels like it's declining. But when you go to places where it's truly dark, where there are secret police waiting outside of where they think Christians might be meeting, guess what's happening there? People are coming to faith in record numbers. People are being baptized into the church in record numbers. In the places where it's darkest, the light is shining the brightest. And so there's a lot of things with culture now that I look at and I go, oh man, it's getting darker. Oh. And I'll be honest, there's a part of me that goes, bring it on. Because in the darkest days, the light shines the brightest. I choose to believe that God is not done. That just like on that day, 
where it looked like evil had won, he never stopped working. Every instance, every part of that story, God is sowing seeds of hope. He's doing the exact same things today. A couple passages speaking about this hope. In Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain, that that veil that has been torn, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart full of assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Where does our hope come from? Is it from circumstances and situations? And if it turns out this way, okay, good, I could have faith and hope? No. He who promised is faithful, and so I can hold on to hope no matter how dark things get. Whether I can see a way forward or not, he who promised is faithful, and I will hold on to that. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Another uh, translation says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope, neither left nor right. But I am holding on to this because he who promised is faithful. And on those dark days when it hurts, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God doesn't have another address. He lives in me. No one can take that from me. They can't create a law that makes that illegal enough. They they can't beat it out of me. He lives in me. My hope is secure. In my affliction, God is working to produce endurance and character and a greater hold on that hope. So even in the dark days when it hurts, he's reminding us of hope. He's building up greater hope in us so that we can hold unswervingly to the hope that we have confessed, because he who promised is faithful. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? You were moving on that day. Again, we know what the next chapter holds, but even just in that story, you never stopped moving. You were still building your kingdom. You were still advancing, God. You were still working to overcome darkness even when we couldn't see it. And you have not stopped since then. You are moving and working today. Give us eyes to see what it is you're doing, God. Would you continually remind us of the hope that we have been called to? All of it again and again through the blood of Jesus, through the cleansing that Jesus offers, we have full assurance of faith. Would you use other brothers and sisters, God, to call us back to hope on those days when when we forget, on those days when we have a, a, a natural focus on the world and what it's doing? Would you continually call us back? Would you continually remind us and put on display for us that he who called us is faithful? You are a good father and you can be trusted in all things and in every situation, God. 
And Lord, I do, I'm just reminded now to pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who are in places that are darker than we can even imagine, who are living with pressures and threats that are greater than we can even imagine, yet their joy and their hope is greater than we can imagine. May you continue to pour out your Holy Spirit on them. May you continue to remind them of your faithfulness. May they sing your praises all the more, God, even to the gallows. May your hope be put on display through your church, God, I pray. Reveal it to us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen.